Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 23rd of February, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands and also our very own Debbie Evans, nursing correspondent. Uh, so let's get straight on with uh, with Ukraine. And obviously, after the news on Monday, uh, Putin decided to uh, sign decrees recognising the two independent uh, republics in East Ukraine. Uh, so here uh, is, uh, I think this is Chinese media uh, talking about it. Uh, and uh, well, this is what he said during uh, his, well, his speech, which was quite uh, heated in, in t at times, uh, Brian. And so he said, uh, okay, you as in the West, don't want to have a friend and ally like us, but why depict us as the enemy then? The answer is one, our political regime uh, or something else does not matter. I'm not quite sure what he meant by that, but anyway, uh, they simply do not want to see such a large and independent country as Russia. This is a source of traditional US policy on the Russian track. He said, I will explain that the US's pl uh, strategic planning documents stipulate an option of the so-called preemptive strike uh, on enemies' missile systems. Uh, and we know who the main enemy for the US and NATO is. It's Russia. NATO documents officially, straightforwardly declare Russia as the main threat for the Euro, for Euro-Atlantic security, and Ukraine will serve as a foothold for such a strike. Uh, the United States and NATO have already begun shamelessly exploiting Ukrainian territory as a theater of potential military operations. Uh, we see how the Kiev regime is being persistently beefed up militarily. The United States alone has channeled billions of US dollars for these purposes since 2014, uh, including the deliveries of armaments, ammunition and specialist training. In recent months, Western weapons have been continuously flowing into Ukraine, demonstratively as seen by the rest of the world. Uh, military contingents of NATO countries have been present actually constantly uh, on the territory of Ukraine under various pretexts in recent years uh, and regular joint drills between uh, Ukraine and NATO have a clear anti-Russian bias, is what he said at the time. Uh, and Alex, if we could welcome you to the programme. Um, do you think that's an unfair statement? Mike, for all that there has been a coordinated attempt in the West to uh, present it as such, uh, you know, it's very difficult to get hold of an accurate full transcript of Putin's speech in Western media. Uh, this is um, you know, something that I've been pointing out to people since they have complained about what they can see in the Western media. Uh, there's been a coordinated attempt to call it the angry speech of an out-of-touch old man and a convoluted speech. But the key word across all the Western media, which was predetermined, I think, was angry. Read the speech. Actually watch Putin's body language if you can find the video. And the key point, and you, you, you remarks on the less-than-ideal translation of the English, uh, was when Putin says uh, the answer is an either-or, that would be a better translation. Uh, the reason we don't have so many good translations is because it's mainly Russians who've uh, taken the pain to uh, translate for us, so they're not native speakers. What he meant was uh, the West's constant hostility to us since the breakup of the Soviet Union is either related to the regime we have politically or it's related to our territory, our existence. And he says that uh, during this speech that for the first time ever he's going to disclose that in 1990, sorry, in 2000, he is a, a newly installed president and Clinton as the outgoing US president had a chin, chin wag about this. Putin said, what would you think about the idea? What would America really think about us joining NATO so that we can't be any threat to you? And he says that Clinton was cool and dismissive and couldn't be drawn, except that he did kind of uh, say, look, chum, it's not to do with your regime. It's because we can't be doing with a state as big as Russia in the world that isn't in our uh, orbit. 
So it, it, it's, it, it's called a rehearsal of grievances in the West, but it is straightforward international law that's being discussed by Putin here. Yes. So obviously uh, the uh, Donetsk and, and uh, uh, Luhansk uh, provinces given, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, re recognition by Putin and so on. But uh, in turn, uh, they did the same. Uh, so uh, uh, here's, uh, if we put this on screen, uh, Russia to recognize DPR, LPR borders declared by the 2014 referendum. So their borders have shrunk since 2014. Uh, but uh, Russians saying that they will recognize the original 2014 borders. But as I say, uh, the DPR parliament ratified a French friendship cooperation treaty uh, with Russia. Um, and this, of course, provides for joint defense uh, and the party's right to use military infrastructure and military bases uh, on the territory of, of uh, the two states and mutual recognition uh, and so on. Uh, but also uh, the LPR as well, the uh, uh, Luhansk People's Republic, uh, also uh, agreed to the similar cooperation agreement. Um, and here is uh, uh, Dennis uh, Pushlin, the uh, DPR leader, if I've pronounced that correctly. And he said, uh, by the way, I hereby order to call up for military service under mobilization the citizens born in 1995 through to 2004 who are not in the reserves uh, and are liable to conscription in accordance with DPR law dated February the 13th, 2015. So uh, Alex, what are your thoughts on, on that decision? Again, it's going to be uh, criticised in the usual suspects' channels, but the, the whole point is here, this is what states have a right to do when they're under threat. Uh, much of the noise, that the, the, the heat that's generated about this now in the West will be about breach of international law. Now, I'm deliberately not going to give chapter and verse here because only a qualified international lawyer who knows the, the treaties and the case law from the various international courts can be authoritative. But I am safe to say that as soon as you do international law 101, whatever your profession is that requires you to understand some of the some of international law, you find out that uh, states do not usually, or sorry, are not required in the post-1945 international system uh, to establish their litany of grievances and uh, uh, their, their validity as a state in purely theoretical terms. International law is practical and it requires two things. Are you guys in control of your territory? Hence Mr. Pushilin and his Lugansk equivalent saying, we have an army, we have men under arms. Uh, if you've managed to prove that to a fair-minded international court, then both the treaties and the case law say, Fair enough, particularly if you have the additional factor of having been shelled, as these men, uh, these populations have. I say men, but it's actually the women and children that have, have suffered most. Um, if that's happened continually, more or less, for eight years now, and I know that there has been shelling of Ukrainians across the line the other way, I'm not minimising that. But if you have been able to, uh, to show that to an international court, that you've been attacked genocidally at, in your own homes, and you have... Uh, reasonable control of your territory, then you have the right to declare yourself uh, independent. Uh, so then the question is, uh, what has been the response from the West? Well, let's uh, first of all, have a look at uh, the initial comments from uh, uh, President Biden. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors? This is a flagrant violation of international law and demands a firm response from the international community. Over the last few months, we've coordinated closely with our NATO allies and partners in Europe and around the world to prepare that response. We've said all along, and I've told Putin to his face some month, a month, more than a month ago, that we would act together. And the moment Russia moved against Ukraine, 
Russia has now undeniably moved against Ukraine by declaring these independent states. So today, I'm announcing the first tranche of sanctions to impose costs on Russia in response to their actions yesterday. Well, my response, apart from the dreadful presentation there, Mike, is to say, who, who does Biden think he is to impose costs? Who does he think he is? And this, of course, is bringing us to the nub of the matter. We've got, we've got the West and NATO uh, who think they can now lord it over everything that's happening in Europe. Um, he's not credible. Biden is not credible compared to to the uh, analysis that Putin put into his speech. Uh, absolutely correct. So uh, let's see what he said about the actual sanctions themselves then. Today, I'm announcing the first tranche of sanctions to impose costs on Russia in response to their actions yesterday. These have been closely coordinated with our allies and partners and will continue to escalate sanctions if Russia escalates. We're implementing full blocking sanctions on two large Russian financial institutions, VEB and their military bank. We're implementing comprehensive sanctions on Russian sovereign debt. That means we've cut off Russia's government from Western financing. It can no longer raise money from the West and cannot trade in its new debt on our markets or European markets either. Starting tomorrow and continuing in the days ahead, will also impose sanctions on Russia's elites and their family members. They share in the corrupt gains of the Kremlin policies and should share in the pain as well. And because of Russia's actions, we've worked with Germany to ensure Nord Stream 2 will not, as I promised, will not move forward. So a couple of points there, Alex. First of all, um, he's going to cut off, they're going to cut off Russia's access to Western capital. Well, first of all, West doesn't have any capital, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, um, the, the narrative from uh, Western governments and Britain in particular is that uh, we've got this massive Eastern bloc of Russia and China. It's very, very scary. And of course, what they've done here is force Russia in China's direction even further. Uh, and the other thing that, that they mentioned uh, was uh, the fact that Nord Stream 2 will not go ahead. Uh, and then the question is, well, who suffers most from that? Is, is Russia going to suffer from that? I don't think so. It's only Europe and Britain and the West who suddenly doesn't have access to oil, uh, sorry, sorry, to gas, uh, is, uh, is already seeing pressure on oil and gas prices as a result. Um, so so those, are the, those are the two questions I have. Uh, this is going to push Russia in China's direction, and we're destroying ourselves in the process. Yes, Mike, and you know, there's a lot to get through on the news, so we'll be very brief here. We'll just say uh, all the smart money uh, the money analysts within the free geopolitical commentary scene especially have, have been saying this, that uh, Russia has the liquidity, it has the assets, it has, if I'm not mistaken, 700 million is it dollars worth in gold reserves um, already. It's, uh, it's able to form uh, a block that can trade in native currencies with China and other Asian powers. Um, it was for fear of this happening between Russia and Germany, between the euro and the ruble, that induced the Biden administration and its uh, its uh, new partner in Germany, the very directly White House-controlled German administration under Scholz and Annalena Baerbock, uh, to announce that Nord Stream 2 was dead. So that was the precursor to this. I think that the Kremlin, and I'm not alone in this, or that most of the Kremlinologists seem to be thinking this, who are not regime-aligned in the West, uh, the Kremlin took a long, cold look at the uh, US order to Germany to declare Nord Stream 2 dead and thought now's the time 
to get rid of the revanchist government in Ukraine by whatever least violent means we can before they form an even more existential threat to us. Putin went into all this. So that came first. The US ordering Germany and via Germany Europe, you will freeze. Uh, you will not buy gas in uh, uh, the currencies outside the dollar. That's, a, that's too much of a threat for the US. That, in a nutshell, I think, is, is what's going on. And I can't hesitate, I can't re resist saying as well with regard to that Biden statement, uh, OK, he's half senile. He doesn't know the difference between declare and recognise, perhaps. He's not a student of international law. Uh, but Western governments in their foreign ministries ought to be. Yeah? Uh, if, if we really didn't know the difference, then NATO and the EU would have uh, imposed sanctions on Turkey as early as 1974 for recognising the Republic of Northern Cyprus. Uh, you know, Turkey didn't declare a country to exist. It recognised a country. Uh, and of course, the rest of the West didn't follow. Um, but of course, Turkey is in NATO and very close to the EU now. Likewise, you know, the Kosovo situation. Putin went into this in his Munich Security Conference speech of 2006. Uh, there are no breaches of international law here. It's, it's a question of precedent and equality between East and West. Uh, Alex, thank you for that. I just wanted to uh, add a little bit. Of course, the Western bankers there pulling uh, pulling the levers of power in the sanctions. But note, they're now targeting Russian politicians. They've been specifically named as individuals that the banks are going to target with uh, whatever financial measures they think they can. Plus, the quote was elites and family members. And uh, as that was announced, I thought, well, isn't this interesting that over in Canada, we've got Trudeau freezing the bank accounts of his own population. So I think what we're starting to see is the real power emerging from the wings, and that is the international banking uh, cartel, which is clearly driving the politics. I, I think this is now starting to emerge, and it's saying it's not just countries we're going to order and bully around, we're going to go for individuals who dare get in our way. Um, so when the EU was uh, talking about what sanctions they were going to impose yesterday, they were saying, uh, well, uh, Joseph Burrell, who's the high representative, uh, EU foreign minister, if you like, uh, was saying, well, Vladimir Putin's name is not on the sanctions list. But uh, the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, is on the uh, on the list. And so is the Internet Research Agency as well. So, but this uh, here is uh, the government's announcement and what the UK is uh, doing. Uh, if we can put that, yeah. And uh, so the Prime Minister has announced sanctions on the following Russian banks. Uh, so a number of uh, Russian banks, they're smaller banks, uh, three very high net worth individuals. Um, and uh, well, we'll come on to another high net worth individual uh, shortly and whether uh, Boris actually said that he was uh, sanctioned or not. Uh, any assets they say that they hold in the UK will be frozen. The individuals concerned will be banned from traveling to the UK and we will prohibit all UK individuals and entities for having any dealings with them, which probably doesn't go far enough uh, as far as uh, Foreign Policy magazine is concerned, uh, because uh, their attitude from a few days ago is if Russia invades Ukraine, we've got to start sanctioning China. Uh, but anyway, look, I wanted to um, uh, show a little piece of video here because, uh, because frankly, Boris's, uh, Boris's uh, propaganda machine has been in full swing. Uh, you may need a bucket close by, and I do apologize to everybody in advance for this, uh, because this will probably make most people feel a little unwell. The resolve of the United Kingdom to defend our NATO allies is absolute and immovable. We, we've already doubled the size of our deployment in Estonia, where the British Army leads NATO's battle group. 
and when I met President Levitz of Latvia and Prime Minister Kallas of Estonia in Munich on Saturday, I told them that we would be willing to send more British forces to help protect our allies if NATO makes such a request. We cannot tell what will happen in the days ahead, but Mr Speaker, we should steel ourselves for a protracted crisis. The United Kingdom will meet this challenge side by side with our allies, determined that we will not allow Putin to drag our continent back into a Hobbesian state of nature where aggression pays and might is right. And it is precisely because the stakes are so high that Putin's venture in Ukraine must fail must ultimately fail and must be seen to fail. That will require the perseverance and the unity and the resolve of the entire Western Alliance and Britain and the UK will do everything possible to ensure that that unity is maintained. And now our thoughts should turn to our valiant Ukrainian friends who threaten no one who ask for nothing except to live in peace and freedom. We will keep faith with them in the critical days that lie ahead. Were you impressed by that? I do feel unwell, I have to say, watching uh, the dross that's our Prime Minister in that pantomime produced by Downing Street is simply incredible. Propaganda. Um, I don't think uh, the Russians ever got this good at propaganda. I mean, that is outrageous. The music is nauseating. The whole of the screenplay was nauseating. Boris, an incredibly poor actor, but playing a very dangerous game here. Uh, very briefly, Alex. Yes, it, was, it is very brief. It is that um, uh, Boris stuttered over his words and he wanted to play the statesman of, of bygone ages and say Britain will not accept this. He had to correct himself to um, the UK, which very rarely happens that one fluffs the name of one's own country in, in, in giving a speech to Parliament. The reason I suggest is because the UK is a corporate crown construction uh, and isn't the same as Britain or Her Majesty's government. So uh, when he's talking about the UK doing this or that and in the style guide, they order civil servants now always to say the UK government never Her Majesty's government, he feels he's a bit on slightly safer ground because he's, he's acting within his corporate City of London mould. Yes, so the question then was who has been sanctioned or not? Uh, and uh, well, Boris, uh, at the end of uh, his little speech that he gave to Parliament, Parliament yesterday and then he took some questions, uh, but he left uh, just as Chris Bryant was uh, attempting to ask him uh, on a point of order. Let's have a listen to this. Point of order. Point for the Chris Brown. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. I hope the Prime Minister could just stay for a brief moment. Um, it relates to what he said about Roman Abramovich. I don't think that's a courtesy of the House when the Prime Minister leaves in that way. Go on, Chris. Go on. Um, the Prime Minister said that Roman Abramovich has been sanctioned. As I understand it, that is not true. I d I'm sure the Prime Minister was completely inadvertent uh, in, in giving a, f a false indication. But it would be helpful if the Prime Minister were able to correct the record. I just wonder, Mr Speaker, whether you can either make sure that he does that or you can make sure that he writes to the House and, and puts a letter in the Library of the House just to correct the record. This, these are important moments of fact. Well, it was nice that he was wearing some underpants there, presumably, Mike. 
Um, well, on the inside rather than the outside, well, you mean? Yeah, well, Bill Gates has got, it, got that aspect confused, but it's just disgusting to see these people. But, I mean, the, the, the point is uh, Boris once again caught in a lie in, in Parliament and uh, once again uh, MPs not willing to say that that's what it was because, of course, they're not allowed to. Uh, they're, they're all scared. To, they're all scared. To, at the end of the day. told off scared. by the Speaker, a slap over the wrist and so on. But Liz Truss then in The Times, uh, this is what she was tweeting out. Uh, we announced our first wave of uh, sanctions yesterday and concert will ally allies with more planned. Nothing is off the table. Well, this is complete nonsense. But in the meantime, uh, her colleague in the Ministry of Defence, Ben Wallace, uh, pushing the notion of the Joint Expeditionary Force. Uh, and uh, well, this is, uh, as most people know, a coalition of 10 like-minded nations that are all there to kick Russia's backside into touch and so on. Uh, but they issued a, a joint statement. So let's just have a brief listen to that. Uh, and uh, if we could. Uh... All 10 defense ministers are united in our condemnation of that unjustified act, the buildup of Russian forces on the border of Ukraine and further incursion in the Donbass region. We strongly support the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine and reiterate the right of all sovereign nations to choose their own path, their own security arrangements and their own alliances, free from external aggression and coercion, as a fundamental principle of the European security order. So, Alex, that was the key point that I wanted to get, uh, get at here was, what is this European security order? I haven't heard this term being used before. Uh, we've obviously heard the term European Defence Union being used, uh, but, but European security order is a new term as far as I'm aware. It's new to me as well, Mike. Uh, in a flash, I suppose I'll try to conceptualise it. It is that just as we now see that the, um, the Victors Club from World War II says there's rule of law for the pleb nations and there's the rules-based order for us to impose our will, including financially, so that the European military space now has the same policy, which and a, a few analysts in, in different wordings have been saying this, that basically there's the creation of states in international law for pleb nations where we, uh, uh, we, we uh, induce people to rebel and then recognize them where it suits us. But within the European space, from the Atlantic to the Urals, if you want me to be cheeky and use that phrase, uh, no, uh, that's, that's not on. We, we've all decided that uh, you don't get to uh, exercise your right to create a state under international law uh, because he doesn't have our say-so. And Putin even addressed this point of the hypocrisy. And to emphasize what Brian was talking a moment ago about the gloves of the bankers coming off, Putin did say in his speech uh, before recognizing Donetsk and Lugansk the other night that the Ukrainians have been induced by their American masters, he didn't use that phrase, but induced, he said, um, to come up with novel instruments unseen anywhere before, such as individual banking sanctions on their own citizens even parliamentarians. So, you know, it's been tested within Ukraine, this very flagrant uh, breach of banking rights. Uh, yes, and just to finish this section off, uh, before we talk uh, about, remind everybody what happened in the 90s with respect to Ukraine, but uh, just before we were coming on air, the breaking news was that uh, Ukraine was imposing a state of emergency for 30 days right across the country, uh, whereas there had been a state of emergency uh, only in the Donetsk and uh, Luhansk regions up to that point, which of course has been in place since the uh, 2014 uh, so-called invasion at that time. But Alex, uh, just you wanted to mention uh, the 1990s. 
Indeed. So uh, we will uh, see here that this is a uh, footage uh, which is quite standard in uh, Germany. It's from the first uh, channel, so it's from public TV, uh, showing that um, the uh, foreign ministers of Western Europe and the United States did make it, did put it on the record in 1990 that there was going to be no expansion of German of NATO to the east. And in Hans Dietrich Genscher's words, the, the German foreign secretary at the time, even though he was uh, a right old uh, pot stirrer and caused the wars in Yugoslavia by backing Croatia effectively, he too was among those who said, we're not even interested in uh, bringing the new East Germany into the NATO bloc. So that has, that has been put on record. And uh, in fact, just this week, we have seen uh, Der Spiegel's international edition, as well as a German original uh, write-up of this that people can find, asking the question, is Putin right that there was uh, deceit in late 1990, early 1991 over the eastward march of NATO, which, of course, the, the, the reason for this is that he's now saying uh, the final step has now been taken, and if I don't act to contain this now, Russia will be at war with NATO. That's, that's why he's done this now. Well, Der Spiegel says it's complicated, and they uh, quote the research of a US political scientist, Joshua Schifrinson, who, uh, among other researches, has gone to the British National Archives, where it's recently been declassified that in early 1991, uh, the usual lineup of powerful Western foreign ministers met and said, absolutely agreed, no rise, no, no push to the east. But of course, these foreign ministers were acting in good faith, not understanding that the banking level was above them. Uh, via the think tanks largely, in a way that we do understand now as we see the actions of the Atlantic Council and the Soros's of the world. We do, we do understand that now. Nor is it just the Germans, because L'Ecrise in French has published an interview quite uh, bre breathtaking as well with the French foreign minister back in 1990-1991, Roland Dumas, who's broken his silence. And uh, for those who don't read the French article that's on screen at the moment, uh, which translates as how the West promised the USSR that NATO would not move an inch to the east uh, by Roland Dumas, who was the foreign minister at the time, if you can't read that in uh, French, there is an English uh, video that's been produced by L'Ecris, by the journalist responsible Olivier Berrier, which is entitled How the the West promised, well, I don't need to repeat the title, now you can see it there. So it is a week of revelations by Der Spiegel and the French. It's uh, indications, I think, sorry, that was a bit of a premature uh, advance, indications by, by several European parties now that they are starting to see that this is a US slash Anglo banking uh, push that's coming on and they don't do not like the implications of it. Um, just to finish off this segment from me, Jack Posobiec often has pithy statements to make on Twitter. And this week he's come out with the observation Fukuyama is down hard. He's using sort of Manhattan investor speak. And uh, someone's replied to him saying, yes, it's the end of the end of history. Um, of course, some people will be too young to remember this. But in the 1990s, the, should we say, the house historian of uh, in international or of globalism, effectively, in the Clinton era, Francis Fukuyama, came out with this book saying that history is ended. Everyone is inevitably going to come round to Anglo-liberal democracy. Ties in quite well with my grand jury testimony last week. But what's behind that model? Ultimately, it's the city in Manhattan. And uh, this is the end of the end of history. Putin has actually spent most of his speech the other night saying, um, in, in gentlemanly terms, but the, the, the hinting behind it all is, we're not going to have any more of this. Uh, we're going to go to the wall as a nation. And you didn't reckon with that in your model. Yes. Okay, thank you very much for that analysis, uh, Alex. I want to come back on the subject of Western media and really the propaganda and spin machine and how it works. Uh, we've got a clip here from France 24, um, two little tiny segments put back to back, which we've done to show uh, the quality of um, Putin's analysis as to what's happening. And then let's have a look at how the Western journalist interprets it for the viewer. 
ДНР. Ну и что-то иное. Far could these troops advance? How deeply could these troops penetrate into the republics, the popular republics? I, first of all, I did not say that the troops would go into these republics. Secondly, I think that it's impossible to predict what will happen. It depends on the situation on the ground. With regard to the question of whether or not we can solve everything by force, by conflict, I would like to stay on the side of good, but just because you're a force of good does not mean that you're not a force of power. I think that the forces of good must also be powerful enough to defend themselves. And on that, I will leave you. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, listening to that press conference was our Moscow correspondent, Nick Holdsworth. We can bring him in for some analysis right now. Um, Nick, there was there from Putin sort of some ideas that we've heard before from him, this idea that certainly Ukraine should not be allowed to join NATO. But it really was a rather combative tone. What did you make of what we heard? He's up the ante. There's a lot of projection there. When... A Russian leader starts talking about the Ukrainians having the capacity to build their own nuclear weapons short of uranium enrichment, which is not that hard to obtain, has Soviet capacity to restart production of Soviet missiles, Tochka uh, missiles that have 110-kilometer range currently and could, say, go up to 250, 350 kilometers you know, within reach of Moscow. When he starts talking about that, that is projection, because the agreement of 1993, the so-called Budapest Agreement of 1993 between Yeltsin and NATO, was to denuclearize Ukraine. The Ukrainians haven't been talking about restarting nuclear armament. This is Vladimir Putin. When Vladimir Putin says this, what he's doing is sending a message to NATO and to the West that he is prepared, so he says, to use nuclear weapons. Now, that would be insanity. He may not know it. The Russian public know it, and those around him know it. It's a very dangerous moment. And I would say it's also a dangerous moment for Vladimir Putin and for the Russians and for the country here. People I've been talking to today, up until yesterday, they probably didn't really think there was going to be a war. Now, casually overhearing somebody in the shop earlier today saying, well, I'd better buy that, there's going to be a war. So quite remarkable um, when you when you contrast the two things. Obviously, Putin spoke for a very long time, and I've just taken one clip uh, there to show the maturity with which Putin's speaking. And of course, Putin is desperately worried about the fact that NATO is moving its armament steadily eastward, and that will include uh, tactical nuclear weapons. And of course, right on the border with Russia, that means the Russians have no reaction time this is immensely dangerous. And this journalist who seems to know some basic statistics about the range of some missiles can't seem to get his head around the fact that the Russians are simply being put up against the wall because they will have no credible defense if uh, NATO brings up its full armaments to their border. But what does he do? He says, well, uh, it's Putin who's, who's uh, talking about using nuclear weapons. Um, Alex, I, I better bring you in because I'd like to say more about uh, the journalist in question. But 
we're, we're simply seeing common sense narrative, which is coming from Putin, being twisted back into the rhetoric which the West and NATO wants. Yes, that gentleman, if my memory serves, his name is Nick Rainsworth. He's, he's a veteran of the scene. Um, as quickly as possible, one, the very next sentence Putin uttered in his speech um, from, uh, from his office the night he recognised the republics said, what I'm concerned about is the West giving Ukraine tactical nukes. Uh, that has deliberately been left out of the France 24 uh, commentary. Uh, that was the, the the main consideration. The other one is people can easily find on YouTube Japanese journalist ask Putin asks Putin about nuclear weapons, and Putin, uh, by his own terms, gets quite animated and says, just short of shut up, uh, this is not something we talk about to endanger the world by saying that nukes are, nukes are going to be more likely to be used. Uh, when did you ever find a Western leader uh, who spoke in such clear terms about we don't mention nuclear weapons they're they're un they're unimaginable no it's it's actually quite possible uh, among most western leaders to talk with a straight face about the likelihood of using nuclear weapons so again i'm not defending everything putin does and i know that there has been with conventional arms a lot of attacks on ukrainian held territory as well with equal amounts of suffering uh, but you know putin is is not just putin personally the kremlin's uh, order, Sergei Shoigu as defence minister, the way they've approached this is entirely within the letter and spirit of international law, in my judgment, and is demonstrably uh, intended to minimise the chances of a nuclear armed World War Three. Mm. OK, thank you for that, Alex. Well, let's carry on through and uh, bring in our old favourite, of course, which is the uh, BBC and have a look at how they have been reporting. This is just one headline, UK crisis, Ukraine crisis, Russia orders troops into rebel-held regions. And if you get into that report, you come across a special report, Putin builds to a showdown. And this is analysis by uh, BBC Eastern Europe correspondent Sarah Rainsford. Uh, let's have a look, uh, look at what she said. She said this speech was Putin, the angry, impatient and directly threatening. There's the BBC's rhetoric. It felt like Russia's president was getting 20 odd years of hurt off his chest and hitting back. That's a particularly callous statement in my mind when you look at the suffering which Russia has had as a result of uh, the Second World War. But there we go. Uh, she went on, you didn't want, uh, sorry, uh, he said, you didn't want us to be friends, was how he put it, to the West, but you didn't have to make an enemy of us. And you covered that just a few minutes earlier, Mike. Uh, you didn't want us to be friends. Sorry, we've got to repeat there. There was a lot we've heard before repackaged for this moment when he knows that he has maximum attention. And he's clearly ceding no ground on his key security demands. NATO expansion must be rolled back and Ukrainian membership is a red line. He complained that Russia's concerns had been ignored as irrelevant for years and accused the West of trying to contain Russia as a resurgent global force. Well, that's a pretty accurate statement in my mind. Uh, Mr. Putin's focus on Ukraine felt obsessive like a man who thinks about little else. At times, it sounded like a bid to run for president uh, there. It was so detailed. But of course, this is Putin talking about very, very important national security issues for the Russians. He is very, very worried that he sees an aggressive NATO moving into his uh, uh, border areas and bringing the weapons and troops with it. So, is, is this lady journalist just not able to 
Well, it does, it does stagger me that she's criticising the president of a nation state for being detailed in his words when this mainstream press for the last 30 or 40 years has allowed uh, prime minister after prime minister to take Britain into regime change operations where there's been no detail provided and they just they just wave it past as if it's, uh, you know, as if it's perfectly normal. Yes. Uh, so so to criticise any head of state for uh, for providing detailed information maybe gives us a clue as to what the BBC's attitude is. Well, they're frightened of detailed information, particularly if it contains evidence. And then uh, she went on, and of course, there was his rewriting of Ukrainian history to claim it had never uh, really been a state in today's context that had deeply ominous overtones. Alex, before I just carry on with this piece on Sarah Rainsford, could I just get your comments on that last um text from her that uh, the rewriting of Ukrainian history yeah. to claim it's never really been a state. Again, uh, Putin, even if you're as sceptical as you can be in his speech, was not saying that in his speech. No sentence said that. He said, and David Scott has shown maps that show the same point recently, there is a core around the centre of what's the modern uh, state of Ukraine, where the people have for centuries said we are Ukrainians and speak the Ukrainian language. Uh, everything pretty much on the left bank, the uh, the eastward bank of the, the Dnipro, was Russian territory. The whole uh, flank, uh, the, the, the littoral strip of, uh, of coast was Russian owned and Russian populated. That's the, the point that we'll, she will not talk about, that there was a core called Ukraine. And in the early to mid Bolshevik period, peace after peace was given to Ukraine from the eastern and southern Russian side, and also from the northern and western Polish, uh, Hungarian and, and uh, Romanian side, which Putin made a big point of in his speech for the first time, all done to create a, a large uh, basically multi-ethnic state with the label Soviet Ukraine on it to keep the Bolsheviks in power. And why stop there? The top level of that, as again, I testified to the grand jury last week, uh, is because the bankers wanted a monopoly in that part of the world. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, I, I went on to have a look at Sarah Rainsford, as I do. It's always good to go and have a look at the individual and their experience. So let's jump back to the 31st of August. Uh, 2021, where we see this headline, Sarah Rainsford, my last dispatch before Russian expulsion. And then, my goodness, she's a bitter lady. I'm writing this in the middle of the night in my kitchen table in Moscow, looking over towards the dim red stars and golden domes of the Kremlin. But by the time you read it, I'll be back on my, I'll be on my way back to England, expelled from Russia as a national security threat. After more than 20 years reporting from Moscow, I still can't believe it. Well, of course she wouldn't because she's a BBC lady. But on the 10th of August, I was taken aside at passport control at Moscow Sheremetsevo Airport and told I'd been barred from Russia by the FSB security service. The officer reading out the order had all the words but no explanation. Uh, Sarah Elizabeth, he kept using my middle name, you're being refused entry to the Russian Federation indefinitely. This is for the protection of the security uh, of Russia, he clarified, and then said I was being deported. I told him I was a journalist. Do I look like a threat? So she couldn't really understand that the Russians would have some concerns about the BBC reporting from inside Russia for 20 years. Um, Russia has been a major part of my life ever since I traveled to Moscow at 18 as the USSR fell apart. I witnessed the chaos firsthand, the endless queues and shortages, even the wars in the mid-1990s as a student. I lived through the gangster days in St. Petersburg when the bar I worked in had men check in their guns at the door. 
Uh, then came Vladimir Putin. Ever since his election 20 years ago, I've been reporting from Moscow, charting the slow erosion of those freedoms, uh, the increasing suppression of dissent as Mr. Putin maneuvers to keep power. So now we really see it that somehow this young lady embedded herself in Moscow and Russian society to actually criticize the Russian government for taking a very unstable state and stabilizing it. So what was she doing? Well, she wasn't acting as a reporter. She was acting as a change agent. But just one question for you, Alex, how can an 18-year-old uh, go into a very unstable USSR, establish herself, and then become a key BBC reporter? There's got to be more to this than just the fate of uh, this young lady's life. Ask Dominic Cummings, who inexplicably uh, arrived in Ros Russia in the same Wild East period and nominally was running an airline that never flew a passenger. Uh, the answer is rich uncles in the city or in Miss Rainsford's case are some other branch of the British deep state. And again, it's the details that, that uh, show the disingenuousness, just to pick one. Uh, she was addressed at Cheremetyevo Airport as Sarah Elizabeth. She knows jolly well, being fluent in Russian, that this is uh, because the Russians address people politely with their patronymic. The Russians would call it imya i ochistva. So calling someone Sarah Elizabeth, in my case, Alexander Charles, is a way of showing respect to them. She knows that perfectly well, but she's still prepared in her embitterment to spin it round to I am being treated officiously. Right. OK, thank, thank you for that very interesting um, little uh, bit of analysis there. But we just want to remind people that if you go to the UK Column website, you can read quite a bit about the BBC's propaganda machine. And of course, we've been highlighting that BBC Media Action wasn't only doing this job in Kazakhstan, but is now active in the Ukraine. And if you do not understand anything about this so-called charity, get onto the UK Column uh, website and have a look at our analysis as to what's been going on. Now, that brings us to the fact that, uh, well, is the BBC digging into Russian uh, money in British politics? Probably don't think so, but the mirror here at least had something to say. A quarter of Boris Johnson's cabinet took Russia-linked cash as Tories head to conference. So this was back on the 2nd of October 2021. Um, where's Boris? Let's highlight him because there he is looking slightly more couth than he does today. Uh, but this is the meat of it. Uh, this, of course, is the wrong Russian money. Or is it the right? This is, this is, this is non-Putin money coming into the Tory party, which makes it good. But of course, if Putin's involved with anything, it makes it bad. Yes. Yeah, so these are the, so the Tory party, obviously getting money from the right kind of gangster. But uh, let's have a look at what Liz Truss uh, had to say about this uh, when challenged. Well, interestingly enough, by the BBC this morning. Let me show you a picture from um, May of 2019. This is when Theresa May was Prime Minister. And this was from your Instagram. I think the, the thing you posted with this was, was Ladies' Night. There you are next to Theresa May. Uh, next to, on the other side of Theresa May is uh, Lubov Chinurkin, who's the wife of a former Russian minister who's given the Conservative Party more than £1.8 million. That makes her the biggest female donor in recent British political history. Her wealth comes from her husband, Vladimir, who has strong links to the Kremlin. Now, in that picture, there are, at the time, there were six female cabinet members. Liz Truss, that shows us, doesn't it, that the closeness of the British government to Russian money. What, what I can say to you today 
is that we will target anybody who we believe has links to the Putin regime, uh, who is helping support and prop up uh, the, the Putin government, and nothing is off the table in terms of who we target. Are you embarrassed by seeing photographs like that? No, I'm not. I, I, um, I attended uh, the dinner uh, at the time. Uh, I make my decisions as Foreign Secretary on the basis of what is right. And as I've said, without prejudice, we will target anybody who is of interest uh, in terms of the Russian regime, who is helping prop up uh, Vladimir Putin's appalling regime. And no, there are no other considerations as far as I'm concerned. Do you think that the money that has been donated to the Conservative Party should be given back? As I've said, there is money donated to the Conservative Party. Everybody who donates is on the British Electoral Register. Uh, they are fully vetted before making those donations. I think it's very important that we don't conflate people with Russian heritage and Russian backgrounds with people who are close to the Putin regime. What I'm clear about is that we will target people who are close to the Putin regime. We will target companies uh, who are supportive of the Putin regime and who are helping prop up the economy. We will do well, I've got to say, Mike, I better not say anything more listening to that because it's such so disgraceful. She doesn't answer the question, but it's it's down to which group of criminals you want to associate with. Uh, Alex, very quickly on this one. This is the number of it, isn't it? Putin kicks out billionaire gangsters, a lot of whom come to London. And then all of a sudden, with no names mentioned, of course, um, it appears that Russian money is coming in to fund the Tory party. The hypocrisy is... Oh, yes, part, Go ahead. Yes, party funding for the, both of the, the mainstream or governing uh, able parties in the United Kingdom has long been uh, an international murky business. And the late Gordon Bowden was one of the best at pointing out the strands. Um, what should we say? For those who haven't heard me say this before, uh, when I was brand new as a British intelligence officer, not long out of university, first time I went to CIA, the opening remarks by CIA to the cabinet office and the delegation from the individual intelligence agencies started with, why have you got a quarter of a million of, I'll use your language now, the Russian gangsters uh, in Britain, uh, each with a, a house with a, an average value of a million dollars at the exchange rate of then. Uh, sheepish silence. Uh, 20 years later, the foreign secretary uh, says, they're on the British electoral register. Well, obviously, because the decision was made then to embrace them. Uh, for short, you can call it the Beritovsky clique. MI6 found them very, very useful indeed, and so did the governing party. OK, thank you for that. Well, just to ram this home to our audience, a simple internet search brings you up with this image. Well, it's many images. Uh, just putting in Cameron, David Cameron, Arch Tory, of course, Russia money. Up comes all the uh, headlines. And then if we have a look at a few of the things listed, uh, it goes on and on and on with people desperately trying to expose, ask the right questions about how Russian money is being allowed to run the Tory party. But of course, uh, there's some investigation, but nothing is done to close the doors. So it's obvious the Tory party is bought and paid for. Uh, here's the mail online, and we're going in a different direction now. Russian billionaire who hired Peter Mandelson is placed under house arrest and accused of money laundering. 
point here is that if we head over to the labor side, they're not squeaky clean either. And if we go to uh, um, 2009, here was the Guardian running a, a prize as to who could get to the bottom of Tony Blair's money. Uh, what they say in the article is, well, of course, Tony Blair has not done anything wrong. It's just that he's managed to lawfully hide his money from prying public eyes. So the question for the UK column is, well, is Russian money involved? How would the public ever know? Because he's been so uh, clever at keeping a lid on who he's doing deals with. Yes. OK, let's move on. If you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. Uh, and there are options to help us out there. And uh, we'll just mention that uh, this weekend there'll be a new website going up for that uh, uh, for that side of uh, for the UK column membership. And uh, so that site will be down from Friday until Sunday. But nonetheless, uh, keep that uh, URL in mind. Uh, also, uh, uh, if you want to share our material on the various platforms, that would be fantastic. And as part of the website upgrade, of course, the shop will also be uh, offline. Uh, on Friday. So if you, in fact, we'll take it offline on Thursday. So if you uh, would like to pick up anything from the UK column shop, then uh, uh, please uh, act quickly. Uh, and then it'll be back online again on Monday, of course. Yeah, yep. it's all good stuff. Yes. So where does that take us? That uh, This brings us to COVID issues. And of course, Boris, the other day, as everybody knows, uh, announced uh, the, the removal of restrictions in this country. But I just wanted to uh, let you hear a little excerpt from the House of Lords here. So this is Baroness uh, Fox, Claire Fox, uh, talking uh, in the House of Lords uh, about uh, COVID restrictions and the lifting of uh, uh, the Coronavirus Act. Um, so, uh, uh, no, that's not that's not the one. Uh, so let's see, uh, where are we? Just say to our audience, while there's a small pause, that uh, there have been a lot of changes going on to allow us to produce more uh, video material and more material in the news. So there's uh, just some slight teething problems. Oh, well, I mean, the teething problem could be that it's not there at all. So that... that uh, We've lost <laughs> yeah, Fox. I do apologise. The Fox uh, has gone But anyway, missing. look, the, the, point, the point of it was that uh, Claire Fox was, was uh, very pleased that the coronavirus, act, the coronavirus Act is being rolled back. Uh, but the response from the uh, government side uh, to her comments was, well, really... Uh, the other thing that Claire Fox said was, you know, we got to deal with this issue of behavioural uh, behavioral change and the fact that the uh, SPY-B team was quite so aggressive with their behavioural messaging. Uh, and the message that came back from the government was, well, although the Coronavirus Act is being rolled back, uh, we do have to uh, absolutely uh, maintain the behaviours that we learned uh, during the coronavirus crisis. Uh, we've got to maintain those behaviours and keep going with them and that the government's messaging would be continuing uh, as a pace. So um, nothing is changing actually on on the on the ground. As it and were. we're going to reinforce that in a few minutes. Yes. Now, as with respect to the NHS backlog, then uh, here is a, a report from the Association of Anaesthetists, and uh, they're saying that in spite of uh, you know routine operations and other operations, six million uh, people backlog on that. Uh, that NHS hospitals uh, should delay elective surgery procedures by at least seven weeks if a patient has uh, had Omicron, uh, apparently. So uh, if you get, do get a positive test for some reason, uh, that means that uh, you will end up being pushed back down the waiting list even further. Um, and then uh, let's have a look at, at this. This is, the, uh, uh, this is a report on the COVID-19 cost tracker. Uh, and uh, this is 
they're saying that mistakes were made, that there was fraud. There's a public uh, accounts committee on the House of Commons uh, saying that basically huge amounts of fraud over the uh, coronavirus, uh, the coronavirus response measures. And I'm talking about uh, uh, things like the grants and the, the loans that were given to businesses, uh, the furlough scheme, for example. Uh, they're talking about at least uh, 15 billion pounds uh, of fraud uh, across the schemes and loans implemented by the government departments. Uh, and Meg Hillier, who's in charge of this department of this uh, committee, said uh, that there was a clear lack of preparedness and planning combined with weaknesses in existing systems across government, uh, which led to an unacceptable level of mistakes, waste, lost, and loss and openings for fraud. Uh, and of course, that is going to result in huge uh, tax bills for uh, the public in the coming years. Uh, but look, I'm going to say this is really great. It's a real honour to have a a building named the Robinson Building, but there you go. Uh, but this is a new uh, UK Health Security Agency research facility at Portland, at uh, uh, Portland Down in Salisbury. Yeah, and so it's going to be called the Robinson Building. It was opened uh, a few days ago. A twenty-seven million pound building, officially opened by uh, Sajid Javid on the right there, and uh, Professor Dame Jenny Harris uh, on the left. Uh, and let's have a look at another couple of pictures. There's. Uh, uh, Sajid, uh, I'm not quite sure what he's doing, but anyway, he's posing very nicely there. It's two, 22,000 square feet of research facilities. Two, uh, it's one of two facilities to make up a new 65 million pound vaccine evaluation center. It's been built to help develop and license new vaccines and to be a global leader in testing against future variants of uh, the coronavirus. Uh, here's another picture, Sajid looking very interested. Uh, and this is fully funded by the vaccine sorry, the, the Vaccine Task Force, uh, which is a joint unit between the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and the Department of Health and Social Care, because what is at the heart of this is the opportunities that COVID-19 is bringing forward. And of course, this is going to be led by the Department for Business. Uh, who else would do it? Uh, and here's uh, Sajid again, looking very interested in various things, because uh, research undertaken by this will include clinical testing to support regulatory licensing of COVID-19 vaccines, because we've got to do it in 100 days, uh, and uh, research and data gathering to inform government decisions on future vaccination policies, uh, and performing risk assessments on variants of concern, including those with potential for vaccine escape. And I thought it was very interesting, Brian, that uh, during the uh, press conference that Boris had with uh, Chris Whitty, because of course Chris, Chris Whitty uh, did did make a reappearance a couple of days ago on the live stream with, with yes, Boris. Yes, very briefly. Yeah. Um, Chris Whitty absolutely talking about uh, vaccine escape, uh, and so suddenly that has been acknowledged as something which is happening. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, I thought that was a, a very interesting development. Where does that take us? Uh, Ursula von der Leyen and uh, Alex, uh, MEPs, not very happy with EU COVID response. It's happened, Mike. And uh, on screen at the moment is the uh, YouTube uh, details that people can go to, uh, uploaded by the informal leader of this group of five members of the European Parliament, Christian Terhes of Romania, who are calling on Ursula von der Leyen to resign immediately. I don't think that there's been anything like this, not even in the corruption scandals of around the year 2000. Yeah, uh, sorry, I think you were covering your microphone there just because you were dropping out a little bit, but go ahead. Yes, uh, I hope that it's a bit better now. Um, so yes, there we are. Uh, look at the list of speakers on screen, just to give an indication that this is by no means just um, 
people that could be right, written off as far right anymore. Um, you've got uh, starting from the bottom among these five, and each all five are from different nations: two Western and three Eastern European nations. Interestingly, Christina Andersen is for Alternativa for Deutschland, which of course is in the identitarian bloc, but that's because they can't find any other home. Likewise, uh, Virginie Joron of the uh, uh, the National uh, uh, Front, as it used to be, the Rassemblement National. Uh, Christian Terhesch himself is in the Europe of Conservatives and Reformists bloc. Uh, the top two gentlemen are very much of the old left, actually. There's Stasis Yakelunas of the Lithuanian Greens, who was born and I think brought up in Soviet Uzbekistan, and uh, Ivan Vilibor Sinchic, whom we featured on the 15th of January, uh, of December, I believe, last time we uh, uh, we featured this smaller group as it was then. Sinchic, of course, then was saying, you cannot uh, alienate our rights, they're God-given. Uh, Sinchic is one of the non-ans-free, the non-aligned bloc, and his background is actually in campaigning uh, against evictions. So this is a, a fantastic cross-section uh, of the political spectrum and the breadth of the European Union member states geographically and economically as well. Let's have a listen uh, in the first of these two clips to the Lithuanian Green MEP Stasis Jakelunas summing up six reasons why this group of MEPs insists Mrs. von der Leyen now has to resign. As we all know, it's in the media, the president was involved in the private communication with the CEO of Pfizer before signing the purchase agreement with this private company, but refused to disclose the content of this communication. This is a clear violation of principles of transparency and good public administration. Second, according to the disclosed segments of the agreement with Pfizer, and not all parts are disclosed, and which is another violation of the same principles, the European Commission has to coordinate external communication with this private commercial entity and to promote COVID-19 vaccines as the global public good. This is not science. This is not good governance. This is an execution of vaccine business plan. And the president of the European Commission acts as the chief sales representative of this business. Three, uh, as a result of this commitment, Ms. von der Leyen has been actively advocating vaccination as the only way to end the pandemic. This is a lie. There have been efficient and not expensive medical treatment protocols from the start of the pandemic. Now thousands of doctors around the world are testifying this, but the President of the Commission has been ignoring this all along. Four, uh, Pfizer, after signing the contract with the Commission on May 20, 2021, claimed in their press release that pandemic is likely to last for several more years and we all will have to be vaccinated a number of times. How can they know that and why the President of the European Commission has to subscribe to this notion? Number five, the Commission has been cooperating with social networks on so-called fact-checking, in other words, censorship of scientific and public debates about COVID-19. This collaboration was announced as early as 10th of, May, of June 2020 and is one of the main driving elements of COVID-19 propaganda. Six, according to the official declaration of interest of President von der Leyen, her husband, Heiko von der Leyen, is the medical director of biopharmaceutical company. He is also an advisor to another company, consulting firm for German and European healthcare market. Since Ms. Ursula von der Leyen is actively involved in active promotion of COVID-19 vaccination business, this is another major conflict of interest of hers. 
Because of all this, she has to resign from her position as the President of the European Commission, and I call on the leadership of all political groups and leadership of the European Parliament to support this request and to finally create an investigative committee of COVID-19 pandemic. People of the European Union need answers from this Parliament on how and why this pandemic started, how it was managed, and how it prevent, to, to prevent it from happening again. Of course, such a moment was never foreseen by the founding fathers of the EU, who in the first iteration just drew the members of the European Parliament directly from national parliaments as a gentleman's club. And from 1979 onwards, they had direct elections, but they never wanted to give the Parliament the right of initiative in legislation. Nevertheless, MEPs have got to this stage. And of course, it's the eloquent uh, former Soviet members, such as Mr. Yakel Yunas, who are in, in, I would say, better English than many others, many native speakers of English who've been in that Parliament, are calling quite eloquently for the President of the European Commission to resign for six perfectly valid reasons. I believe we also have a second clip, which is Mr. Terhesh, the, the powerhouse of the group, um, pointing out uh, something as well of, about the, the corruption involved. Do we have that lined up? Yes. The European Union right now, it's in a deep crisis. It's in a crisis of leadership, and it is in a crisis of accountability. We already have two investigations here that are proving that Ursula von der Leyen is clearly not fit for this office. She committed maladministration. On the way, she handled that request from the journalist, and 72% of the MEPs just voted yesterday that all of these contracts be published. So I joined my colleagues, and I publicly demand the immediate resignation of Ursula von der Leyen and allow this union to actually be led by a person who truly believes in the European values, in transparency, and in respect for fundamental rights. And I can do little better than to urge people to find that uh, pretty brief press conference uploaded by Mr. Terhesh on YouTube, among other places, and listen in full because it's passionate and wide ranging if you listen. Okay, Alex, thank you very much. Well, if people are thinking that all of that, uh, we're going to call it a scam, is going to stop, the evidence is that it, it isn't. And uh, one of the places where you can uh, hear and see for yourself um, the so-called uh, experts saying that we're not out of this by any means is to uh, go to Sky's Great Debate. We'd like to welcome Debbie Evans to the news today because, uh, Debbie, tell us a little bit about how you got engaged with Sky News and their Great Debate programme. What was it about? Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, yeah, I just heard it on the news, actually. If anybody would like to participate in Sky's Great Debate with Sir Trevor Phillips, then to email in. And I thought, what a wonderful opportunity to ask all the questions uh, to the scientists that we need to ask. So I emailed in and much to my surprise, I received uh, an email back saying that they would like to include me. But would I sign a legal agreement? And as I scrolled down the email and looked at the legal agreement, I realised that this was extremely complex. Um, and not something that I would be signing or writing in a hurry, so I ignored it. Much to my surprise, I received another email to say, we definitely want you on the, on, on the virtual audience with no legal agreement. Please submit your questions. So I thought, oh, fantastic, I'll submit my questions, which I did. 
To which then I got a text from the great debate to say, oh, please sign the legal agreement, which obviously I wasn't about to do. So sadly, um, I did submit my questions, um, but I wasn't able to participate because of the legal agreement. But I did watch the programme with very great interest that was broadcast on Monday night, the great debate, Sky News at nine o'clock. Right, Debbie, thank you for that. Well, let's bring this very interesting picture on screen because this is the composite of the Zoom audience. And uh, there's unfortunately a big back box in the centre, which we really think was probably designed for you to participate. Uh, but you had another communication from Sky News uh, this morning, which I'm going to say to our audience, we're going to talk about, but we can't even show it to you. Uh, why can we not show the audience? Well, let's have a look. This is what it says. You should not reproduce, distribute, store, retransmit, use, or disclose the contents of this latest email to anyone. So it does appear that uh, Sky, in attempting to get the truth out, or at least get debate going about how people feel about COVID-19 lockdown and the vaccination programme, want them so bound up in legal regulations, uh, they're not going to make it too easy for them. Before we bring, Debbie, before we bring you back on screen, uh, let's just have a look at um, a couple of little video clips from the great debate so that people can get an idea of uh, what was being talked about. So if we could just pop up uh, clip one, please. The issues that matter to you most. Tonight, after two years of lockdowns, restrictions and isolation orders, the government says it's time to live with rather than fight against the COVID-19 virus. But can life ever really be the same again? I'm Trevor Phillips, and this is The Great Debate. Each week, we get to the heart of the issue dominating the headlines. Tonight, as the Queen is treated for COVID-19 and the government announces self-isolation rules and free testing are coming to an end, our viewers panel from across the country will tell their stories. They'll have their say and they'll hold our studio guests to account. Joining us this week, Professor Azaghani, Chair in Infectious Disease Epidemiology at Imperial College London. The chef and restaurateur, Aldo Zilli. Harriet Minter, journalist and author specializing in women's rights and the future of work. And Lord Sumption, former Justice of the Supreme Court. The question facing us all tonight, are you ready to live with COVID? Well, there we are. There's the opening. Not very high quality, I don't think. And uh, I'm old enough to use a particular word, which is naff. It was just appalling. Um, Debbie, before we see the next clip with a bit of comment from the Imperial College lady and Lord Sumption, what was your feeling about the event when you watched it? Oh, ex exactly the same as yours, Brian. Um, I thought uh, Sir Trevor Phillips was umming and ahhing and deliberating all the way through it. Um, the questions were framed in a way that um, he was obviously wanting a specific answer, as were the email questions that I was given as well. They were framed in a 
in a way that I was was not comfortable with. And the whole the whole program I thought was tacky. The sound gave out a couple of times. Um, no, it, it wasn't it wasn't easy on the eye or easy on the ear. Okay, thank you for that. Well, let's have a, a, a listen to what two of the experts had to say. Uh, so that was the Imperial College lady in Lord Sumption. So let's look at this clip. Very helpful. Thank you, Steve. As Ghani, um, you rightly set this out as a, it's a difficult judgment. And you lean towards, as I said, the, the precautionary principle. But you hear from Aldo Zilli, the impact on the economy. You hear from Aisha Hennessy, the impact on mental health, that there are costs both ways. Can you see that the costs of not opening up might be greater? I, I would first say what we're talking about here is not whether we're opening up the economy again. What testing does is allows people to make those decisions, to test before they go to the restaurant, um, to, to test if they feel concerned about their health. Um, and then to go to the workplace feeling more comfortable and more confident that they are indeed safe. So I, I don't think that's that's the balance here. I suspect most of this is really related to the economic cost of testing. But I'd remind everyone that the cost of testing depends on the level of transmission. If we have transmission at a much lower level, the cost will come down. There'll be fewer cases to test. OK, well, let's see how this discussion has shaped the view of our wall of our viewers panel. I'm going to put everybody a question to you and I want uh, some hands up. One of the government's main announcements today was an end to the requirement to self-isolate uh, if you test positive for COVID. So um, what do you think? Should people still have to stay at home if they have coronavirus? Raise your hands if you think people should still have to self-isolate if they have coronavirus. <laughs> okay, uh, don't hold your hands, just let's see. Yeah, actually, just a bit more than half we're thinking, think that um, self-isolation should stay. Lord Sumption. Um, well, the way you put the question, I think somewhat invited that answer. <laughs> um, the, that, that, that's, a, that's a lawyer's response, but anyway, they know what I mean. Okay, they, uh, I'm sure they do. Um, I, I think that there's one aspect of this which no one's mentioned so far, which is that we are not in the same situation that we were a year ago or a year and a half ago. The levels of vaccination are extremely high. Uh, Omicron is much more infectious than previous variants, but uh, it is now absolutely clear that the symptoms are much milder. The, the proportion of confirmed cases that get hospitalized uh, is less than 2% at the moment. Uh, the, um, the, the treatments available are much better. This is not as serious a problem as it previously was. And we're entitled to take a different balance of risks now than we would have been half a, half a year ago. All right. We are going to continue. So, Debbie, you picked up from the original um, invitation email that you received that Sky appeared to be highly biased in the way that it set forth its agenda. Uh, one of the comments I remember seeing on the email is that they, uh, they were asking people for all of the wonderful benefits of lockdown. So it was distracting people away from what had really happened to thinking about the benefits of lockdown. 
Uh, but Lord Sumption clearly picked up on the fact that what's going on here is Sky is using applied behavioural psychology. And of course, their own chief executive uh, uh, was reported in wider media and the UK column a couple of weeks ago uh, because they declared that Sky was going to work with behavioural insights team in order to use applied psychology. Did you feel that this was a, a free and open debate? No, not, not at all. And, and I actually did uh, email the CEO of Sky News staff, um, and I said that not only were the questions within my email, um, I felt manipulated and um, divisive and almost encouraging the reader to, to come up with a specific answer, but that also this was going on in the programme and that I wondered whether they were aware of the nudge techniques that they were using um, with, with regards to their readers and listeners and what would they like to do to comment on that. And then miraculously, I got an email back this morning from Sky thinking that it was a reply from the CEO's office with regards to the behavioural tactics that they obviously using. And um, my might was an invitation to appear on next Monday's programme with the same legal agreement. So they haven't replied to me as yet. Okay, thank you for that. Now, we've just got a, I think it's about 40 second clip from the end of that great debate. And I'm going to say to all of our listeners and viewers, please watch this very carefully and listen to what this lady says. Partner, Jonathan Sumption. Well, I shall want to do more of the things that I've been prevented from doing um, over the last two years. Uh, the, uh, and in my case, also uh, number one in that list uh, will be traveling. Um, I like traveling and one of the big hardships, well, I think of the most unnecessary hardships have been the, the border closures. Okay, so get, uh, get uh, an air ticket. Azogani, what would you advise yourself? Well, I'm, I'm probably also on the, on the travel side of things, um, but working in this field, I think I would advise myself that it's going to be so much more difficult and go on so much longer than you can possibly expect. John Husseini. Trevor Stills was speechless there for a second. There, there, there is the truth of the matter. These scientists know that this control is going to go on longer than we could ever imagine. And this is why this, we've got to get the lid off this corruption. Where is it going to take us? Um, well, Debbie, you've, um, you've seen these documents. I'm looking at the clock because we're a bit short for time now. So I'm just going to bring them up on the screen and then give you the opportunity to comment. Uh, but we've got Public Health England here, improving people's health, applying behavioural and social science to improve population health and well-being in England. Uh, this is uh, the next page that you come to. But what caught my eye was, what are we really dealing with here? We're dealing with UN Sustainable Development Goals. This is not UK political policy or health policy that's being enacted. This is UN Sustainable Development. And when we get inside the document, it's really quite scary to see the extent to which they are going to use behavioural and social sciences to supposedly improve our health. So see, these are some of the childish uh, drawings. We've obviously got a rainbow here, but we're talking about everything from biological through person, family, community and neighbourhood environment, social systems and policy, 
but overlaying on that is on the right of the screen, psychology, sociology, anthropology, and economics. So all of this being linked together, but that's not all because this diagram continued uh, with this uh, matrix. And if you look, it goes from social policy at the bottom to genetics at the top, because this is really where they want to get to, um, looking at the coding of everybody and they're going to use um, everything from health, economics, psychology, linguistics, and uh, biological, biochemical research to get there. Uh, more diagrams, the proposed five waves of public health, uh, but not to worry because uh, all of this is going to improve our health, apparently. And here we see more of the UN agenda because here's the stakeholders, which we often talk about, Mike. And so we've got a great cluster of them. And uh, Debbie also picked up on the fact that Deloitte uh, is busy talking about the hospital of the future. And um, from their quite well-written article, it appears that hospitals that we know so far will simply cease to exist very shortly. And how can we be sure that major change is coming? Well, here's uh, a reset for the NHS, social care, time to grasp the nettle. And uh, it appears that uh, the NHS and the GP system is to go. Just very quickly, 30 seconds on what you see coming for health in the future. Okay, yeah, well, it is a huge, huge subject. And I know it's one that we will cover in depth. But basically, this is embedding behavioural sciences into public health. That means us. It's going to be bringing rigour and discipline it's going to encompass every single part of the NHS, of which there are thousands of different parts that have been fragmented all over the place. And in the end, what we see in the future is hospital at home. And it really is quite that simple. This is not the National Health Service. This is the National Home Service now, where even if we have to go to hospital, it will be on a very rare occasion. And our discharge will all, always be determined upon our admission. So remote control, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, you name it, it's all to come. The NHS as we know it now has collapsed. It's gone, it's completely gone. But I, I know that we're tight for time today, but that it is a big subject and I know that we are going to cover it in depth and really get down to the nuts and bolts of it because everyone needs to know what is literally just around the corner. Next year, this year, it's all unwrapping now. Yeah, Debbie, thank you very much Great. for that. Um, okay, Alex, we've just got a few minutes, but uh, let's move on to Canada. And uh, well, first of all, a little video clip with uh, Justin Trudeau, but do you just want to uh, say a few words of introduction on this? Who are watching in video, watch the Deputy Prime Minister and uh, Supremo of all things financial and banking, Christia Freeland, uh, who is Trudeau's very own nodding dog. Uh, dog. But uh, Trudeau here is talking with a straight face, actually, about the uh, removal of people's rights in Ukraine uh, by Putin's so-called invasion. And uh, listen to him talking about authoritarianism. Canada and our allies will defend democracy. We are taking these actions today to stand against authoritarianism. The people of Ukraine, like all people, must be free to determine their own future. We will continue working with our international partners to safeguard Ukraine's territorial integrity and prevent further Russian aggression. 
The hypocrisy in there is content. spectacular, Alex. <laughs> We, we do often say that, Mike, but this one's off the charts. I'll move swiftly on because I know we're pressed for time. So uh, in the um, context of that, let's have a look at the emergency measures regulations that there's been much to do about in Canada because Parliament has been prevailed upon to vote for them. Of course, the Duma also voted unilaterally for recognition of the Donbass republics, and we're told that this was bullying, but not when Canada gets the same result through its parliament with Trudeau saying, uh, if you vote against the government, the only reason possible is that you don't trust us to take the difficult decisions. Anyway, here's the SOR 2022-2021, uh, sorry, 2022-21 in the Canada Gazette. And uh, what's the key point here? Uh, section two of the regulation, prohibition of public assembly, uh, blah, 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 you mustn't be a naughty boy by coming out and demonstrating in certain circumstances. But here it comes. This does not apply to persons registered as an Indian under the Indian Act, persons recognised as refugee or in similar circumstances, which of course gives local councils lots of leeway, persons with temporary resident permits, persons who seek to enter Canada for the purpose of making a claim for refugee protection, a protected person, not further defined, at least not in this instrument, and a person or any person in a class of persons, that would be identitarianism, whose presence in Canada, as determined by the executive, is in the national interest. The trouble is particularly 2A here, uh, that there's no ban on protests, even under the emergency uh, regulations, for persons registered as uh, an Indian under the Indian Act, because quite a lot of our viewers will know by now that one of the most brutalised ladies in last week in Ottawa is a recognised Mohawk elder. So whether that actually will have any uh, juice, uh, actually whether it will, it will give any legitimacy to her claims for redress through the courts, remains to be seen. Another brief clip here, and... Uh, this is, I think, a particularly interesting one. We're going to hear the Canadian Conservative Federal MP, Colin Carey, C-A-R-R-I-E, ask a question remotely, perhaps because he's unjabbed, I don't venture to say, but the unjabbed aren't allowed in the chamber. But he's asking remotely. Of course, Canada's a huge country. He might just have been back in his riding, his constituency. Um, he's asking it about the World Economic Forum. Rather amusingly, he stumbles and says um, WWF, whether he's referring to the the wrestling or the wildlife people, never mind. But he meant to say WW, uh, sorry, World Economic Forum, and he corrects himself. Colin Carey asks his crystal clear question, uh, question through his um, uh, video link. Mr. Speaker can't quite hear him, but oddly enough, Charlie Angus of the system-aligned NDP heard him perfectly well, well enough to protest against the raising of the question on the in the first place, which was on the behalf of one of Mr. Carey's constituents anyway. So let's have a listen to that. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I listened to my colleague's speech. I had a constituent that wanted me to ask a question about outside interference to our democracy. Klaus Schwab is the head of the World Economic Forum, and he bragged how his subversive WWF World Economic Forum has, quoted, infiltrated governments around the world. He said that his organization had penetrated more than half of Canada's cabinet. And I was wondering, in the interest of transparency, could the member please name which cabinet ministers are on board with the WEF's agenda? My concern is the deputy. Uh, order, order, order. I, I know he was. I know the, uh, the member was in a, a really good, good question there, but the the, the audio is really, really bad, and the video is really, really bad as well. Um, and I and I and I apologize. I don't know if if the member. Okay, uh, let's let's uh, let's try again. The honourable the, the, the honourable member for Timmins James Bay. Mr. Speaker, that member was promoting open disinformation. That's not debate. We have to call out disinformation. Uh, we're going to get into debate again.
Yeah, so Mr. Speaker there, um, if you listen to the number of times he did a restart in his words, uh, I think he knew that that was something that one does not talk about. Uh, I think it was entirely disingenuous that he couldn't hear the question. Just one example uh, will come up on screen, screen now of what the Trudeopians of Ottawa um, and more widely Canada are talking about. So there's been a debate here. We've uh, blacked out, or someone else who shared this with me has blacked out the name, uh, fortunately, of the, the question. Questioner, we don't want to personalise it, but here's what's being debated by regime compliant Canadians when the truckers were still in Ottawa. He says, we need, or she, we need to have a talk about these truckers on a more fundamental level. If they choose to stop working like this, the economy suffers. We all suffer. Uh, I'm sure the City of London and Wall Street and the Canadian subsidiaries are very happy with this question. We can't get food, clothes, iPhones, all the basics, you name it. The freedom of everyone in shouty caps to buy the necessary essentials trumps their freedom to stop working and hurt the economy. This is when you, where you end up when human rights and the balance of rights comes in. Is there some kind of law we can invoke to keep them delivering goods? Why are they just allowed to hurt the rest of society, rest of us by not doing their jobs? Well, uh, if there is to be such a law, I would suggest that it should probably be called the Corvée Act, the Levé Act, or the Forced Labour Act. Uh, no doubt it would get through the Canadian Parliament if it were brought in. Uh, one of our best long-term researchers at UK Column, Azra Dale, a Canadian now living in Wales, uh, has started a blog which I think is going to be extremely good, already has proven to be, not, not surprising given her quality. One of the things she's already asking is whether the Alberta arrests were a false flag. And uh, in that regard, she's pointing out that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the federal uh, constabulary in Canada, um, did some uh, arrests for possession of firearms. Uh, she has a lot to say on this because Canada has a murky past going back to the 1970 invocation of the War Powers Act, the precursor to the Emergency Act, uh, which as illustrated, I think, in the next... Uh, uh, part as well. Well, th that's just um, a further bit by Azra Dale that there's been a, a shooter case involving uh, lots of questions as to how people got hold of the arms. Uh, but what she's uh, pointing out here in the uh, memes that she embeds uh, is that back in 1970 to 74, there have been some serious allegations. Uh, Matthew Ayrett in his grand jury testimony uh, went into this under day two of the grand jury as well. Serious questions about whether the Mounties were put up in a, what you'd normally call a continental European style of, of provocation. Uh, so the police were basically alleged to, uh, to be uh, letting things go bang in order to provoke states of emergency. So um, that, that's something that we need to bear in mind as a serious uh, possibility. Um, my slide advance. Yes, there we are. Sorry. Yes, there we are. Um, moving over to um, Australia, or if you look at the logo, it's Squiggle. This comes from Squiggle News. Let's find out where Squiggle is. It's ABC in Australia. We find local resistance to uh, the uh, implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals, which are probably going to be, after we come out of the, the, the full horror of COVIDianism, that's probably going to be the pretext for the next lockdowns and bank account theft. So what's ABC News reporting? It's uh, that a town council in New South Wales, Port Macquarie Hastings, uh, it's a local government area of uh, about 85,000 people, has revoked the uh, mainly demonstrative purposes uh, climate change emergency declaration that the previous council had made. So the newly elected council of that lo local government area, named after the first governor of New South Wales, Macquarie, has revoked its climate change emergency declaration. Lengthy debate, council has voted seven to two, this is worthy to report, even though it's a small uh, local government area. 
because this is the way to get um, the, the next uh, stage of globalist and banker control out. Uh, you can see that even ABC, which is regime aligned, is quoting the mayor as saying she has even um, you know, financial reasons to do this. She's saying, look, it's the, the federal government that's responsible. And she, the hint is, I know perfectly well that the Soroses of the world want to undercut the state by getting local councils to pretend they have these powers and bring them through British councils that's at, at just the same at local level. But if you club together at local level, you can get it out. Uh, just to prove that I'm not making that up, Montana House Bill, because uh, you know the states will have their own legislatures, uh, House Bill 583 in 2015, the details are on screen if you want to freeze it, did uh, exactly that. Uh, it, uh, in the preamble, uh, pointed out what Agenda 21 was. That's the previous iteration of the SDGs. The recitals, the two whereas statements at the top, are pointing out that this is theft and that also councils of governments, which is you know the way of getting it into local government, are not lawful and Montana needs to throw them out, not wait for the federal level to do so. Uh, they had did something similar in 2015 and look at the vote. 11 or 10 against in the lower chamber of the Montana state legislature. It came down to one vote, but it has set a precedent that a state in the US, a province in Canada, a state or council in Australia, a county council or unitary authority in Britain can do this if you vote through the right people. Sorry for advancing that too quickly. Um, uh, just well, finally, look, look Alex, uh, how long? How long is this? Uh, we're we're pretty much no. out of time. Do you want to show this? Two minutes. Okay. Two minutes. It's all right. Two minutes. It's, uh, just then, a teaser. Two minutes, and then we must end. Very well. It's uh, just a, a teaser for uh, an interview which will be coming out soon with Charles Mallett, the uh, recently resigned uh, detective constable of Gloucestershire Police. For the context for this, go to my previous appearance a week ago. Charles Mallett here in his wonderful uh, Eton and, uh, and household cavalry voice, he was actually an assistant equerry to the Queen at one point, although he doesn't bang the drum about it, uh, is talking about why he resigned from the police and really the horror that's, uh, that greeted him when he realised that there were no moral boundaries in the police. And I hope that those who are troubled in their various professions and wondering whether to resign uh, should listen carefully to what Charles Mallett said. I did make them aware that I'd resigned. I sent the, the, the letter that you read out uh, on UK Column on the 16th. I, I sent the entire package of correspondence back to the executive board to make them aware that I had resigned and why, um, because I was specifically... Uh, you know, I, the, the point that I was very keen to put across to them was that um, in the in the penultimate paragraph of my resignation letter to my supervisor, I have written that um, my own views can only be expressed from outside of the organisation and I will be leaving in order to take on those that seek to trample over the individual's freedom of choice. And that was really not exactly a, a, a warning shot, but I, I wanted to make it clear going back to the beginning of our discussion now i joined the police to serve the public and to be a force for good and i'm not in any way suggesting that this makes the police a malevolent force but it but it certainly has the potential to and that is phenomenally serious and i think that the the gravity of that was not grasped during this conversation because as as we've discussed when you put all this under a covering of public health people will do anything it turns out and um <laughs> reminds me of i think he's quoted him a few times to the wonderful neil oliver who who quotes mark twain and and you know history 
may not repeat, but it does rhyme. And one doesn't want to be hyperbolic, over, over dramatic. But the point is, without this line in the sand, how, how can one, with views like mine, in good conscience, remain in an organisation that could take this, this anywhere? There is no limit. And the rest of that is forthcoming as a standalone interview. Brilliant. Okay, Alex, what a lovely place to end with somebody standing up to be counted from within the police. So we're going to say, brave man, well done. I hope many people will support other people inside the police who start to stand up to failures in that organisation. We need to go. Yes, and I'm very sorry to say that we're not able to do an extra today because we've got visitors in the studio today that we've got to look after. And uh, we just add a few little glitches in the news that there's a lot more happening this end uh, than there used to be. And we're only able to make those changes and improvements due to the tremendous support we've had from all the UK column audience uh, subscribers and people who've donated. So if you're supporting us financially, thank you very much. We can only do what we do with your financial support. We will be back at the same time on Friday. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye.